Hey guys, it's Amelia Singer here on Ameliorate Through Wine, where I pair wine to international guest palettes, personalities, and personal stories. I am thrilled that this podcast is being vigorously propelled by the Rothschild Wine Collection from Good House Wadston, all names synonymous with a century-old legacy of art and wine craftsmanship. I really couldn't think of a better pairing for this wine and culture podcast. From the early 1920s to the present day, the Rothschild family's profound love for both art and wine coming together has been at the heart of their journey. Their family's artistic heritage distinguishes the labels, often telling a unique story that gives an extra dimension into their exceptional wines. With handcrafted bottles created by celebrated artists, mesmerizing cellar installations, and label artwork produced by members of the family themselves, the Rothschild's timeless commitment to the fusion of art and wine is a legacy that continues to inspire connoisseurs and enthusiasts alike. Visit goodhousewadston.com for more information. So now, sit back, pour yourself a glass, and enjoy. May I introduce my father, John Singer, who, when I asked for help on his introduction, described himself as impossible to classify, to which I'd have to agree. A successful investment and financial services professional with over 30 years in private equity and also the former chairman of the European Venture Capital Association. In his own words, he feels he is impossible to classify as he feels neither retired or not, neither young, medium or old, neither English, European or international, neither financial or industrial. What he does feel, and which I can testify to, is a definition of energetic and enthusiastic. I would also add he applies these in huge measure to his role as a father. John Singer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. I like the father bit at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to get too sappy. I think that will probably come anyway after a few glasses of wine. Speaking of which, I'm going to go straight into our first one. Ooh. Because, you know, I've paired all these wines based on people's palates, personalities and personal stories. And so I deliberately chose wines which can't be put into a box. I thought this, that you would approve of this. Yes. And definitely wines who are not afraid of who they are. So we are going for a Viognier. Ah. Which we can tell the story about Viognier in a little bit. But it's a special grape for both of us. And it's actually a Viognier from Australia. The spiritual homeland for this wonderful aromatic grape is obviously Condrieu in France. But this is an amazing, amazing winemaker doing, I think, incredible, incredible work. I mean, always with Viognier, what you're wanting is that wonderful honeysuckle and slight kind of peach element. Um, And on the palate, I hope you like it because that should hopefully follow through. Very silky and supple. But... What I love is, even though it's from Australia, uh, in County Clare, which is near Canberra, it's actually a really, really elegant example. And I just think it's very, very beautiful. Also, what I love about it is the winemaker before was originally going to be a priest. And he was actually in the middle of his studies when he admitted in confession that he kept on thinking about his father's vineyard. And he just kept on having these dreams of the vines. And the, and the father said to him, well, maybe you should go into that instead. I think you should really address this dream. And he did that in the 90s and has never looked back and now makes amazing Shirazes and Viognier's. 
And uh, yeah, this is Clonakiller Viognier from the Canberra District, 2019. What do you think? Well, it's funny you chose this because, um, <clears throat> and put it in the context of someone following their dreams, because actually you were really just autobiographical at that point. Because uh, it was actually Viognier at the age of 11. I used to sort of give you girls just a little taste at weekends of wine. Not with the meal, but just to taste it, and just to see what you've made of the taste. And, um, and I must say, I was absolutely sort of flabbergasted when at about the age of 11, I gave you a Condrieu, a, a Viognier, and you started describing sort of peach and sort of apricots and elderflower. It has been a sort of very special grape. You're quite right. Grüneveltliner is the sort of the special one at the moment, and it's really exciting. That's, but yeah, your favourite at the moment. That's a real favourite, and that's sort of, that, that is something really distinctive and that sommeliers know all about and that actually their clients don't know enough about. And it's a great, for those who love Chardonnay and want something different, it's great. But Viognier, to me, is absolutely wonderful. And the second thing, apart from, you know, that it sort of gave an an inkling of what your career might be, um, is that it is such a, an extraordinary grape that works beautifully sort of wherever you, in certain places where you plant it. It's not actually an easy grape. No, because it can get a bit flabby and blousy and high in alcohol quite Absolutely. quickly. And this comes from a cool climate in Australia, so that's why it works. And that's why this one is yeah. not that big, which I love too. You in do the love right that. Mood. And I actually, I was going to say, this that. is quite expensive one. It is £45, but you do also really like... Klein Cellar, yeah. Viognier, and that's Absolutely. about £12, and that's from California, and that's a little Absolutely. bit richer and more like peachy jam, I would say. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is sort of, you know, when you're in that mood. But exactly. The, but the beauty, yeah. I, I, in a world which, you know, has become so global and which is something I am very happy about, I just love the idea that in, you know, South Africa, or you can go actually even in Italy. Spain does a lovely one just outside Toledo. Mm -hmm. There are places where it does grow and has this wonderful, very distinctive taste. Um, I like the choice because it shows that you have to have courage in life. In France, this is a grape which is really tough. It's really tough. It makes life so difficult for the poor grower. So there came a moment when in the Rhone Valley they decided this is just too much and tore it all up except around Condrieu. And they lost their nerve and suddenly it was imitated by the rest of the world. And there was a sudden realization, oh my goodness, but it was too late. They had put in sort of Grenache, Syrah, and Mourvedre and other grapes where this Viognier had been. So they had to move to the Pédoc and to other areas of France to sort of grow it. Now that, to me, that's been a lesson I've always sort of um, kept in my life. You know, be careful when you sort of throw something out because it looks a bit <laughs> difficult. You may live to regret it. <laughs> Oh, well, I am very happy you approved this choice. Can you think of any stories of your earliest memories of you enjoying a wine with your family? Or At that time, people did not drink wine on a regular basis. Uh, what supermarkets. time is this? Just to... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so cruel. You're so cruel. We need to give the um, listeners context. Okay. I was born in 1951, so therefore, if I'd be young, we would be talking about sort of right at the beginning of the 60s. Yeah. When admittedly, it was a sort of the hippie, hippie age where you sort of, you know, marijuana was probably okay, but, uh, <laughs> but wine was not. And, and it was, 
it was just sort of not something that was in the stand at home. It was sort of um, seen as in a rather elite drink. And you could say, well, was I given any beer? But my parents were just simply not beer drinkers. So actually, I had to wait um, till, you know, after school. I mean, I always see you having wine with food, primarily. And yes. food is also, I would say, another great love. Yes. You know, when I got into my private equity days, and there was sort of quite a bit between that, sort of McKinsey and then working in industry, running public company turnarounds. Um, but then when I was really working three, four days a week abroad, um, once one left this island and got onto the continent of Europe, it's amazing how, you know, to be allowed to buy someone's company, um, you had to really know them. And know them in a way that sort of, you know, banter um, pre-meeting is, is just simply not going to work there in a way that it might in an Anglo-Saxon. You talk about the sports, talk about the, the football on I'm the I'm sure TV. you did really well in that. I did re oh, my God. I <laughs> <laughs> Conversations were short. <laughs> well, I know that we have very easily blended food, wine, and career. And now we're definitely going to flow more into the career trajectory with a wine from South Africa. We both love South African wines. And this is from, I can never, ever pronounce the kind of Afrikaans. Gabriel's, Gabriel's Kloof? Gabriel's Kloof. 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 Gabriel's Kloof. I'm sorry for any South yes, African I listener. Me too. I Me butcher too. all the South African wines. But you make beautiful wines. I'm just sorry I can't pronounce them. And this is an amazing Bordeaux blend. What do I mean by that? It contains the grapes that you'd usually find in a Bordeaux red. So this is a blend, to get the precise, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Malbec and Petit Verdot. And what I really love about it is we don't always drink that much Bordeaux at home because we tend to like things which are slightly riper. Also, you just never know with the years in Bordeaux, like how consistent it's going to be. Sometimes they can be quite austere for some of our family members. Whereas what I love about this is this is classic Bordeaux grapes, but made um, near Walker Bay in South Africa. So it gets lots of sunshine, but you've got kind of maritime influences from the ocean breezes. So the grapes don't get too hot. And what I find is this really lovely, opulent wine full of plums and cassis. And there's like a little bit of clove there. It's, it's got firm tannins, there's a little bit of dark chocolate on the finish, and it's only 16 pounds. And I think it's just very, very hard to find something of this quality for 16 pounds from Bordeaux. And I also wanted to do a shout out to it because not only is it a delicious wine, I thought it was definitely a red, which you'd approve of. It's got good structure, but it's also a lot of personality mm. and it doesn't want to be put into a box because it's paying a homage to Bordeaux, but it's very much doing its own thing. The story behind it is quite interesting because um, the winery was actually set up by a very, very successful industrialist, Bernard Haynes, who, after making a lot of money owning a brick manufacturing company, wanted to then set up his own vineyard. But it wasn't plain sailing. And this is also what I like, because you're, you're also someone who really appreciates people who've worked hard and it hasn't come easy and has a bit of grit. And when he first received varieties in this land, not all of them took that well. And they really struggled to get real traction in the market. And um, he asked to have some help from his son-in-law, who you will have come across 
Peter Finlinson, who makes the amazing crystalline wines. Amazing, probably some of the top Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And I've met him, I've been out to his place in, in South Africa, lovely guy. And so Bernard was trying to get his son-in-law involved and Peter was like, oh, do I get involved with the in-laws? This is like a lot of pressure, ah. And um, <laughs> I don't was, understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it really put kind of Bernard in a difficult position because all his friends were congratulating him on living the dream after living this successful business life. He now owned this beautiful winery, but he really could see the balance sheet and how much money was being lost. And so it was quite difficult for a while. But eventually, Peter Allen decided to get involved. His first vintage was in 2015. And since then, he's really been steering the wines and they've come on leaps and bounds. This is um, the Blend series, 2019. Their top series is called the Landscape series. So I think if you're looking for a Bordeaux blend from that series, it would probably be more like in the 50s. But this, I think, really is elegant. It's fun. It's joyful. And for £16, and I also just want to do a shout out to where both of these two wines have come from. I want to always support local independents and local wine shops um, in these episodes, as well as have one supermarket wine. And these two wines come from a local wine shop um, and bar, which I just discovered three weeks ago, called Goulburn Wine and Deli. So it's on Goulburn Road in Notting Hill. They set up before the pandemic as like more like a deli thing. And then um, what they've done now, throughout the pandemic, they would open shut, open shut. But you walk in and it's almost like walking into a library, but for wine. And you know how in Waterstones, they sometimes have the buyers write descriptions of each like their favorite books. Every single wine in that shop has a handwritten, really beautiful description of the wine. Fantastic. Well, no, well, no, it is lovely. And it, and it demonstrates a few things, doesn't it? Uh, firstly, the price is not the determinant. And I have to say that is such an amazing principle for life. And uh, I think it's really sad when one gets trapped by sort of brand and by label and by, you know, not just in wine, I mean, in, in so many things. Uh, clothes is a good example. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the joy, the wonderful thing is that, no, you find things that you love as if you, as long as you stay true to yourself and actually say, this is what I love, and try not to be influenced by the fact that there's a name on it that you sort of recognize. And so again, I think that's, that's one very good point. I think I, I also like your point about small is beautiful. I mean, obviously, having been in private equity, I've worked with small businesses, mediums, and some of the largest. But the fun ones and, and the ones that do need support are, 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 are small. And now in my other side of my, my activities, uh, which you referred to in my sort of arts and culture and education. Again, that is a side where one is constantly trying to support individuals. And we've just, at my City of London Symphonia, um, we've just appointed a, a, a CEO who's just in her mid-30s. And you just see all the budding talent. And the joy will be to, you know, be backing her as I am absolutely certain, you know, she develops her career in what she's doing. Now, that is the real fun in life when you can actually work with people and you sort of feel that you're developing somebody and that you're bringing out those talents. So, no, it's lovely to, to, to have from a small uh, wine merchant to have that. And we're back on that, on that global message again, absolutely. aren't we? We're absolutely. finding that Bordeaux blend 
way thousands of miles <laughs> or even kilometers uh, in, in South Africa. And I think that is the joy of seeing, you know, and okay, a little Malbec thrown in as well, which mm-hmm. uh, obviously... Which they used to have in Bordeaux. They used to have in Bordeaux. But then, then they got rid of it. It's a Viognier story, <laughs> and now, isn't it? And now, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a Viognier story. Exactly. And they replaced it with at, Merlot. And, like, yeah. and, and look, some of the most famous French producers have now gone and started up joint ventures in Argentina. In Argentina. And it was thanks to the French immigrants in 1880s why now, like, Malbec is, like, Absolutely. King Red Grape. Have, yes, yes. So, you know, it's, 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 it's fascinating to see how, you know, um, how things happen in life. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's great. I'm going to go just back a little bit, just because we are going to be talking a little bit about your career, but just for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what private equity is, ah. because I always described you at school... <laughs> this is going to be bad. Um, no, as yes, because like I was trying to get my head around it at like twelve, so I was like, oh, oh, my daddy does what Richard Gere does in um, Pretty Women, but not the whole hooker thing. <laughs> and what I meant by that was yes. Please explain. <laughs> For the benefit of myself as well as all listeners, yes, do explain. <laughs> Is that you went around and you bought businesses which are in distress and you invested in them and you helped build them up. And then, yeah, you'd sell them off for bigger profit, but it would like help everyone. That's not bad. That's not yeah, bad. So that was like my pretty women analogy at 12. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, not, yeah, I'm glad that the hook a bit. <laughs> <laughs> We, we got that really firm Mommy straight. looks a bit like Julia Roberts, but she definitely... She does. But she, she does. does not, and she does not why, fit into the hook a bit, And that's why I've been together for 42 years, yes. But it's not hook a bit either. It's not her. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Just absolutely to clarify. Not. Yes, get that really straight. No, basically, private equity is a very broad umbrella, which covers everything where, if you like, it's connecting a source of capital, money, with a business, and adding a third ingredient... And the third ingredient can vary in terms of what it adds to the mix. And you are one of the pioneers in private equity. Certainly in Europe. I set up the first pan-European fund um, and um, ended up, obviously, 25 years in a, one of the big mega funds helping to run that, running Europe and running the world with, with my colleagues. Um, so I've had all sizes and... Uh, when I first started, you know, we were like a little band of, of musketeers all going off and doing our thing. We'd all lie to each other, you know, when we met at conferences. How's everything going? Oh, fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> Even if, you know, every company was going bust. No, it's great, it's great, it's really going well. So you could never, I'm afraid at that stage, take that too seriously. But we were all in it together and we were all, you know, trying to make it work for our sake, but also for the sake of those companies. So there's a tremendous camaraderie. And now it's somewhat institutionalized. It's sort mm. of, you know, it's, it's, it's a different game, which makes it safer for those who are in it. Fair. But does remove that slight frontier land, that sort yeah. of, uh, I'm not going to use the word cowboys, because that, again, will just reinforce your bad image you were talking about. <laughs> but frontier land, pioneers, arrows in the back. That, that, scars on the back. Yes. From yes, arrows. Yes. Yeah, From arrows, arrows. scars. Arrows. Yeah, definitely, I like that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was what it was all about. <laughs> Well, also, I'm just like kind of curious because I've, I've never really asked you this before. Um, what was your scariest moment in your career? Yeah, that's a, that is a, I suppose, <laughs> I 
I mean, there's, there are several scary ones, you know, and, and, and the, the scary moments, like for anybody, is when you find yourself sort of almost out of your depths. And, of course, if it works out right, it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't, we know what it feels well, like. Well, we are, we both do. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and, and so I suppose on that one, I remember uh, it was not too long after I had changed to, to, to Advent International, and... Um, and I satisfied myself in a, what was then a very large deal. It was probably eight, nine hundred million, which, um, but in those days, that was a very big deal. And we had only three weeks to do it, whereas normally you'd have about three months. Oh, wow. And I remember being absolutely terrified. Um, and, um, and it was that sort of complete fear because one had to bring together banks for the debt. You had to convince your own colleagues that one should be putting money into this. One had to be getting to know people in three weeks. This was Robert Zolad, you oh, yeah. remember, at, at Elior, and um, who became a very, very close friend and, um, and a good fellow sort of chess player, sort of business chess, so to speak. And, um, and it all just happened, you know, everyone was working literally day and night. And I remember you know, we were getting quite a tough one because we had to agree amongst ourselves as well as negotiating with General des Eaux, a big, big, big French company that was selling 48% of the business. And actually, your sister disarmed the whole meeting without knowing it. In fact, she probably doesn't know it to this day. She'd once given me, because I love pigs, a sort of a rubber pig as a sort of lucky mascot. And I brought it out. It was about three in the morning. We had about 30, 40 people in the room. And to my great luck, talk about luck, Robert Zolad, my sort of counterpart who owned, you know, the, the, the 52% of the company, um, he adored pigs. And suddenly, the two of us found ourselves talking about the film Babe. <laughs> Your favourite film! My, it is one of my very favourite films. And we talked for <laughs> half an hour. And I can just tell you, I mean, I was mentally working out on, the taxi, on, on a taxi meter how much, you know, having sort of 20... 25 professionals in the room, what it was costing us. I know, all the lawyers and everything to Absolutely. talk about babe to for talk half about an hour. Babe. But it cracked the ice and, you know, that scariest moment was turned into a, a really sort of good moment. The other bad moment, I suppose, I, that's worth mentioning, was in McKinsey days, my first study. And we had a, a, a director of the study, I think he has since deceased, so I, but I, I still won't mention the name, and who's head of the study, but didn't get involved in the study until right at the end, and kept on piling more and more on my colleague in this and, and myself. And we were literally working day and night with about sort of, and we'd sleep on the floor next to the computer, which in those days was just pumping out the sort of paper. Oh, God. So we didn't sleep. So we got to the progress review with a client and I was a new boy. I'd been in two months in the firm. And progress review in place, client sitting there to wait, you know, and slideshow goes up. And okay. suddenly my colleague who was doing it and who was the one who was, you know, obviously leading this, just from tiredness, suddenly started to vomit. And had to sort of no. rush off. Rush no. off to the gents no. where he spent the next two hours just sort of solidly vomiting and having to rest and then vomit again and, and just sheer tiredness. And suddenly I found myself with two months experience having to try to give this slideshow. That, that actually has to go down as... That's awful. It was awful. It was really, really, oh really awful. 
and uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't in a very pretty environment. <laughs> I was going to say, did he manage to like not get any vomit in the room? No, I'm afraid he didn't. No, he oh, didn't he did succeed. get some vomit. Oh, no, 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 it was in the room while the presentation continued. So yes, it was. Um, <laughs> it was. A, I suppose you call that a memorable occasion. Put it this way: it happened in 1978 or 79, and it's still you know, firmly in my mind now. So I guess it must have been a bad moment. As someone who's spent their life investing time, energy, money into businesses and organisations, would you ever invest in wine? Only once have I thought about it in my life. Really? Yeah. You know, oh, it was... I no, came home, you never told me this. This would have been in about the uh, late 80s. So you're about 87. And... It had been a terrible week of trying to sort of agree to buy a company in Belgium. And the guy's been just so awkward and so difficult and so deceitful. That, that, that those are the things oh, I'm afraid no. I find. Deceit and dishonesty, the, the only things in life that I really find very, very difficult to take. And I came home and mummy was asleep. And I just said, you know what, why don't we just leave and you, you weren't even born. Um, and why don't we just leave and let's buy a vineyard. I never knew this. And I, by complete chance, I happened to have, I can't remember if it was Wine Magazine or Decanter, one of those next to my bed, picked it up. And there was the first in a series of six about an English guy, Nigel something, who had given up the city, had bought a vineyard in France. So he starts talking about it in this first episode where his neighbours very sweetly come and sort of say to him, French, of course, uh, wine growers, oh, your, your fences have fallen down, but we'll be very happy, you know, to put them up for you. And of course, no charge. It was only sort of sometime later that they discovered that they'd moved the fence in you know, two metres and, and actually acquired it. But then came much worse was the weather. And he realized that however bad the city was and working with city people, it was not like trying to control hail and storms and what have you. It's a very so humbling industry. It was very humbling. So the morning, mother sort of says to me, well, darling, did I hear you say something about, you know, a vineyard? And, and I just said, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Must have been in your dreams. Must have been in your dreams. So last but not least, a wine I've chosen, um, which I've actually, this has not been filmed, I've served it from a water jug because I wanted to decant it because it's quite a big, bold red to finish, but I didn't want to have to wash up my decanters, which are quite fiddly. <laughs> but this is just a good tip for anyone at home. If you do need to decant something in a rush, just pour it into a jug and it'll do the trick. This is actually, I'll show you the bottle now mm. from a producer we know. Well, the brand is um, Orange Swift and the winemaker is Dave Finney. And I want to finish with him because we haven't really touched on the American side of my family, which, and we do both do love the States. My mum's from the States. We spend a lot of time there and we've enjoyed other Orange Swift wines over there. But I also, um, I chose this wine because it is, you do love big, bold reds. And this is a really fun blend of Grenache, uh, Syrah and Petite uh, Syrah, which is definitely not smaller than Syrah. Petite Syrah actually has like double the tannins and kind of a lot of acidity and gives a lot of plushness and chocolatey element too. And I think this is a very 
yeah, festive wine. Um, I know this is meant to be an evergreen podcast, but um, it is a really fun one with a kind of red licorice um, elements going on and blueberry fruits and a little bit of chocolate. And yeah, it definitely did need an hour to decant because there's a lot going on. And actually to make this wine, they, they choose between a hundred different wines to come up with the final blend, which is called Abstract. And uh, I got this from Majestic. Again, this isn't cheap. Not all of the Wines White podcasts mm. are going to be this expensive. But I think this one is, yeah, £40. Pounds. Mm. But I kind of thought this could be a treat for us. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, um, and as you can see from the label too, there's like lots of different, like it's like a montage of different mm. photos because Dave Finney, the winemaker behind the brand, Oren Swift, is a huge photography fan he is a real artist um he's also a self he's a self-made multi-multi-millionaire because he created the prisoner brand which you see everywhere in the states and which you can now see here which has a really iconic uh sketch of the goya painting of the prisoner and then he just put mm -hmm. he just put the sunlight behind it yes and it was just like a very simple thing. He's like, some people thought it was stupid, but I decided for my first ever wine I produced, I'd just take this iconic sketch and just put sunlight behind it. And um, I think, yeah, the first vintage was 2000 of that and he made 385 cases. By 2010, it had grown to 85,000 cases. And now it's sold everywhere, like everywhere when I was just in the States recently. You see it in the supermarkets. It's on every single wine list. Um, people feel very, it's a kind of cab blend. People feel safe with it. And then he created Orange Swift, which all have these really cool, very artistic labels. And he's managed to sell both of them for millions of dollars. And um, he now has all kinds of projects involving wine bars, distilleries, a fried chicken restaurant, which are all operating off an island, which he bought off San Francisco. And yet when I interviewed him, about three or four years ago, he was just very, very calm, very, very understated, had dirt under his fingernails. He still works with all of these sites. And I said to him, you know, do you consider yourself a winemaker, an artist, an entrepreneur, a marketeer? And he actually just said, I'm a farmer. Like, I'm first and foremost a farmer. And actually, like, he, he does lead a very, very humble life, very understated, and, and just was a really sweet, amazing, inspiring mm. guy. So I thought, in terms of a homage to kind of family heritage, family memories, choosing a wine which is created by someone who definitely doesn't fit into a box and is very inspiring and is also just a lovely person. I thought this was quite a fun one to finish off with. Mm. What do you think of it? I love it. Uh, you will not be surprised <laughs> to hear it. Um, no, I mean, and, and I, I must say, I mean, I, I do love, you know, at the right time, minerally wines and the sort of, you know, yeah. less opulent. But my goodness, I do at other times, you know, it is this type of blend or it is a sort of the sort of Primitivo Zinfandel, Primitivo style, the Puglia one, or it is, you know, sort of the Corvina of an Amarone. Yeah. Or, you know, really that good was the Quintarelli. That's the first red wine we enjoyed together in Amarone. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And there are so many sort of gorgeous ones from Quintarelli. Uh, sadly now dead, but, you know, but all of these wonderful um, sort of big wines, which, you know, um, yeah, we have certainly friends who just say, you know, take this away. Yeah. What's, what's wrong with the Pinot Noir? Nothing wrong at all. 
how about a Washington State or an Oregon, an Oregon one? And, yeah. uh, you know, rather than sort of going straight for the burgundy. And, um, but no, to me, this is lovely. It has all the fruit, the richness, the sort of, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. And um, now I've always loved his wines, including his first, well, yes, the Prisoner. prisoner. Uh, I, I thought the Prisoner was a, a very enjoyable, it's fun. lovely It's fun. And you know what wine. you're going to get. It's yeah. not trying to be anything Not trying to be else. pretentious. And, 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 you know, what's to be liked about pretentious? Every guest has to give me a wine confessional of something either embarrassing in their past, which involved wine, or kind of an aha moment. Yes. I could pick, of course, any of those moments where, you know, bearing in mind that one in eight, one in ten wines are corked and that sort of awful moment with sommeliers uh. who don't want to admit. But that is, no, I think, no, I, I still have a memory, just like I had an earlier one, uh, an embarrassing moment that doesn't go away. There used to be, this was actually when I first knew your mother, so this is 40 years ago, and there was a German firm that was the most brilliant uh, wine, wine maker, which, brilliant, brilliant company. They never made a bottle of wine themselves, but they had a fantastic brand name. And the, the key was they would send out all these salesmen who pretended to be sons of the owner whose name was on the bottle. And the trick was they would arrive with 12 bottles pre-arranged and each time you liked a wine, they'd put it to one side so that then they would come back to the ones that you'd liked and pour you another bit of glass. So you were absolutely pickled <laughs> and you had no idea what you were doing. And they said, well, you like this one. So shall I give you a case? And I said, yeah, the case. And the case for them was 18 bottles, not 12. Mm. Really clever. And they would get you to sign the bit of paper. You're just signing a piece of paper which just said one case of this, two cases of that, half, you know, the... And they would never add it up. So you had no idea till that invoice hit you. No. What you were saying. So no. we were invited on a boat cruise um, on the Thames to do a wine tasting. So I thought, right, this time I'm not going to fall for it. So we sat there with our backs uh, to, to the water, you know, sort of the window. And I said to, to, to Susan, I said, right, I'm going to taste one or two bottles you know, when they come round. But then I'm going to be drinking so slowly. And when they go off to the next table to talk, I noticed there was an open window behind. And I said, I'm just going to throw the wine out of the window. <laughs> and they'll think, you know, that I've drunk it. And then I just go through it. So I'll be absolutely stone sober and we're not going to buy a bottle. That was the plan. So I had my first two or three wines and then it came to the fourth one. And they put the wine in the, uh, into the glass Waited, beautiful, just as planned. Salesman goes to the next table. I take my glass and without even looking, I just simply throw it behind me. What I didn't realize, someone had closed the window. And suddenly the wine hits the window and Murphy's Law, it bounces, perfect vector, sort of, you know, and absolutely straight in the face of this rather plump lady who was there to enjoy her sort of wine tasting. <laughs> So, so she sees me holding an empty glass. She sees herself drenched in her white wine. And of course, her husband immediately assumes that I have taken, for some reason, some personal sort of ante to his wife. 
And suddenly, you know, he's standing up and he's screaming at me. And I'm trying to explain. And what do you say to yeah. the salesman? <laughs> you know, I'm trying to get rid of the glass of wine. I didn't know they'd closed the window, which is what I said. And you could see um, it was oh definitely God. one of those really embarrassing moments. Did you have to stay all the way through to the end? Yes, of the day? because oh we no. were in the middle of the river. Oh no. There's no chance of getting <laughs> off. They would have loved to have got rid of me straight away. <laughs> but uh, no, I was locked in there and had to drink. History doesn't relate whether I ended up buying the wine or not. I do not wish to remember. I just remember the oh look of God. that husband as he looked at his, at his wife dripping <laughs> in wine. <laughs> sort of thinking, what, what does this bastard think he's doing? You know, but, uh, yeah, does that classify as embarrassing? That's really good. That's Thank embarrassing. I should say thank you so much, John. Um, it feels much more to say thank you so much, Daddy, for coming on. I really appreciate your time, your wisdom, your enthusiasm and energy. And it's been really fun sharing these wines with you. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm very happy to share these wines with you too because I really also want to promote Goulburn Wine and Delhi. Is there anything you would really wish to talk about, promote, big up to our listeners today? Well, I suppose two things. One, I suppose I've talked about music and just as you talk about doing things through wine, I'd love just to people to open up their mind to doing things through music. So, you know, so the City of London Symphony, yes, it does you know, performances at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, etc. But it is working at the Bethlehem and the Maudsley with mental sort of uh, patients sort of, uh, who are suffering. Um, the National Youth Orchestra, yes, they do the prom at the sort of uh, Albert Hall, but that's not what they're about. It is the teenage to teenage working in local communities and teaching them values and leadership through music. So I think that would be one message I'd say, you know, please don't forget the arts. And the same applies with, the, with visual arts as well. Mm -hmm. It's what you can do through the stories that those paintings are telling. Don't just think about the brushstroke. Think about sort of really the stories they're trying to tell and what the artist was trying to say. And I suppose the other message would be um, to everybody out there with daughters, um, appreciate daughtership. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. Cheers. Cheers. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope that this has inspired you to grab a glass and have a wonderful conversation with someone close to you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please can you like and review because I've heard that this is how people can find me. And if you are interested in any of the wines featured in today's episode, all wine notes are included in the podcast description below. You can also find ways to contact me via my email, website and social media handles. The common theme is at Amelia's Wine. You do need to remember, though, that there is a hyphen between Amelia's and wine. Otherwise, it looks like Amelia's swine. Thank you so much again and back in blessings.